Well, good morning, Salt Church. How cool is this? Um, it's always easier to uh, follow up um, worship and all things into a message when the Gators won last night, you know, so that I'm just saying that's an easier thing, you know, but um, I'm so grateful that you're here. Uh, quick story, I grew up um, all over the country with a dad in the military, but for a number of years, my junior high, high school years, I lived in the the state of Nevada near Reno, kind of the high desert area. And I remember meeting a guy, it was really my dad's friend, his name's Paul Nance, but I got to know this guy who um, had a truck that he outfitted very uniquely. Uh, on his truck, he had normal headlights, but then he just had lights upon lights upon lights. He added tons of headlights. He added over the roll bar in the back, a ton of Casey-like headlights, maybe down low on the grill, like the whole, it's lights. And you need an absolute uh, strong source of power, more than just a normal truck alternator to power that kind of rack. So what he did was he grabbed two alternators, somehow rigged a second one up and belted it under his hood. And they were not just normal alternators, I think they were alternators out of ambulances. So he had power to run all these lights. Now, why does someone need that many lights? Just one reason, <laughs> he got so annoyed when someone wouldn't turn off their high beams. So, so imagine this, Paul Nance would drive across the desert of Nevada, which is pitch black, the stars so beautiful, no humidity, high um, altitude desert. And on one of those nights, if long way in the distance, someone had their high beams on, he would very kindly, just with little lights go, you know, like you do, right? You just send them a little message that your high beams are still on. You should turn those off. But if they didn't, I think this is what he lived for. Like if they didn't, he'd get close enough to him and then all of a sudden, you know, like throw the power, engage these alternates, like light up the whole rack. And he says it always looked the same. He said for about a quarter mile in the desert, daylight, <laughs> daytime. And he goes, and, and it always looked also the same in the vehicle. He goes, first, I could see everyone in the car. Can you imagine, just like you're looking at everyone and he goes, and so, I don't know if this happened every time, but you know, the driver might be coming at him, just hands off the wheel, like, yeah, you know, like heading right into the sun. Like he would drive past people, lit up, the desert lit up, their cars lit up because he was annoyed at them. Just, just that, dark night to you're stepping into glory. Like, just like that, I'm telling you, I thought of that as I thought of this passage because today in the scriptures, God's gonna throw the lights on. And I don't even think it's like a, it might be a little bit more of a dimmer switch than the full blown, but this isn't meant to blind you. This is actually meant to direct you. God is going to show in sort of the darkness of human history that a lot of people can't understand wars and kings and monarchs and presidents and lines of nations that meander as people get conquered. We're going to see that God has an angle of all of human history. History, as it's been said, is truly his story. And we're going to see the lights come on for where God has been directing all of human history. This passage, as we near the end of chapter three, will point us clearly at the target of God's will. And then we can respond while we center our lives around it. We're in Ephesians chapter three. If you've got a Bible, I would invite you to open up to that place in the Bible. Ephesians three, we've been moving through this book. It's a letter that this guy named Paul, this, uh, this apostle wrote to a church in Ephesus. 
Now, Paul starts off very interestingly um, in verse 1 and kind of loses his trail of thought, like immediately. Ephesians 3, 1, I'm just going to read the first verse, actually, to kind of start where we're at. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he totally goes on a tangent. <laughs> I don't know if you do that sometimes. Like you're talking, you're talking, and then you think of something else. And then you just start going off on that. It takes a little while before you get back to what you were saying. Well, that happened to Paul. And it was inspired by God. So apparently, God's behind those tangents. No, maybe he's not behind every tangent. But here, this guy just gets derailed. It's like, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner. 13 verses later comes verse 14. In fact, you can look at that where Paul, it's like he gets back on track. For this reason. (laughs) I kneel before the Father, and he begins to pray for them. For this reason, huge tangent, and then he picks it back up. What's the tangent about? What's this divine interruption that he has? What's crazy is sometimes the divine interruptions, the tangent, the thing that would seem like, wait, didn't you get off track, end up becoming the most important things. This is actually the focus of the book. And he gets a little off track but we see how he got there. Read with me the first couple verses. Ephesians 3, 1 and 2 says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And he says, You've heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you? Like you've heard about that, right? And how did the divine tangent begin? I think when he mentioned himself as a prisoner, he just wanted to let him know. Now, you know how I got in prison, don't you? You know how I ended up here. I I used to visit you. I I was there freely. I traveled in your city. You know I'm in prison in Rome. That's why I'm writing. I'm not there. I had to write you this letter. But you know how it happened, right? You know God had this for my life, don't you? He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, technically, that's not quite right. He was actually a prisoner of Rome. It's not like Jesus had him in some jail cell. He wasn't a prisoner of Christ. He was a prisoner of Nero. He was a prisoner of Rome. But just imagine this. This this suffering is so part of God's story in his life. He has so come to see this as from the hand of God. This trial, he is convinced, is so sovereignly appointed to him that he's like, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. He knows it's Rome, but he goes, God's behind this. I just know it in my guts. Can you pause and just imagine what if we saw our suffering like Paul, always coming through the hands of a good and gracious God who never wastes suffering on his children, who always uses it for his glory and for our good in ways that are unimaginable, unimaginable. Paul saw his suffering ultimately from God. What if we saw cancer ultimately, though the enemy would try and wreck lives, ultimately a trial from God? What if we saw depression? What if we saw our pain, our grief, ultimately as God allowing this to come for a good purpose? I'm telling you, you talk about a song, he will hold me fast. It's a view of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering we don't want that holds me fast. I'm not banged around by life circumstances. God is allowing things. 
And Paul knew it. Paul knew this. Paul's suffering as a prisoner went all the way back actually to the commission God had on his life. See, Paul had God reveal himself in a very unique way. We don't always get it like this. Oftentimes, if you start talking to someone, how did you become a Christian? They might, they'll probably tell you the name of someone, you know, or maybe they saw something on TV or they heard the gospel message from someone. Paul had a unique start to his faith, a very unique revelation that was followed by some really bold proclamation. But the unique revelation was that Paul was a guy out to destroy Christians. He was a Jewish fanatical leader who was perhaps even putting them to death. And God got a hold of his life in one of the most amazing ways. Jesus himself blinded Paul as he was on his way to abduct more Christians, humbled him, brought him soundly into the faith that he now had in Christ. And while blinded, told this one guy, Ananias, look at this, this is a, a little bit from Paul's story, Acts 9, 15. Paul told this guy, one, uh, this Ananias, go for this man, uh, Paul, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that's what he did. Once the gospel was revealed to him, he began to proclaim it. But suffering he knew was in the cards from the very beginning. He knew this was coming his way. And he was ready to go through it. He gave his life telling Non-Jews, Gentiles, probably most people in this room are not Jewish. He gave his life sharing the gospel with them. And then he continues his thought here. Look at verse 3. Paul says, the mystery, he's already talked, he's already used that word. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to comprehend my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He uses this word mystery. Three times it's going to get used. Here, verse 4, verse 9. Three times he uses the word mystery. What does that mean? I like watching mysteries. I'm always trying to figure out who done it, how they do it. I'm always getting them wrong. The part, like mystery, if you watch a mystery with me, it quickly turns to a comedy because afterwards when you understand it, I still don't understand it. I don't, but I think I do. And the comedy part is if you ask me, Paul, why don't you go ahead and explain it to us? And I will with confidence tell you something that has nothing to do with the movie. But I believe it does. I have tried to solve movies that are not that hard. Guys, my reading comprehension is so low. I'm telling you, it was science and math that got me through school. Reading comprehension, I'm like, wait, what? I, I just don't get it. It is a unique irony of God that I am a pastor. <laughs> reading the Bible and trying to explain it to you. Unbelievable. This is God using weakness. Um, but, but I'm sorry, tangent. <laughs> Mysteries. I, I really, I'm like, I don't get it, you know, but I think I do. So, it, so watch movies with me, you will have a lot more fun than watching them by yourself. But Paul's like, I'm going to tell you a mystery. Now, mystery, the way it's used here is something that has been hidden, but God intends to reveal. But for a long time, it was hidden. For a long time, it remained hidden. And this mystery, in the second use of it, it says mystery of the Messiah. So this is a mystery about Jesus that people just didn't know for a long amount of time. God intended to reveal it, but it was going to take a while before this thing was going to be revealed to them. Now, we've already, he says, man, mystery, as I've already written above, one thing that was a mystery, just quick review, was that God could be known. That through faith in Christ, you could have a relationship with God. Some of you need to hear that. 
no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done wrong, God can totally forgive you. He can forgive the Jewish people through faith in Christ. He can forgive Gentile people, non-Jewish people, same thing, faith in Christ. So, so that was a mind blow, but then here was another part that was a mind blow to them. Now, because you both have faith in Jesus, now God sees you as equals. Like the Jews, just because God kind of revealed himself to them first, Old Testament story, like they're not better and you're a second class citizen, uh-uh. No, now they can have relationship with each other. There was such animosity and hatred. You can go back to last week and, and Jordan's message on Ephesians will tell you all about that. That's why Paul's going, for this reason, he's tying it back into that. So, so vertically people, Jews and Gentiles have been restored in relationship with God. Horizontally, Jews and Gentiles have been restored in relationship with each other. So it's beginning to unfold. And, and he goes, here's a few words that describe you now, co-heirs. It says the Gentiles are co-heirs, co-heirs, members of the same body and partners of the promise. Three terms he uses to describe the new relationship they have with each other. One, co-heirs, no second-class citizens, not at all. They are together. God sees them as equals. That was a mind blow to them. Maybe in a family, I, I didn't have adopted kids in my family, but maybe if you're in a family that's kind of like the natural children, or children born in the family and then adopted children, it might be that some of the ones born in the family might tend to look down. At times, maybe at a point of weakness, just, you know what? It's not even your mom and dad, my mom and dad. We added you to the family. We were the originals. Like you, they might tend to look down at times if there was bickering. It might even be if you're over here going, I'm sure they love you more. That truly was your mom, dad. And you know what? I came later. There might tend to be a first and a second place. And God's going, not my family. Not my family. There is no ethnicity that's more important to God. There is no age range that's more important to God. There's no part of the globe that's more important to God. There, none of that. All of you can come to God equally. Children, adopted, into the family, co-heirs. All of it's yours, all of it's yours. Co-heirs, members of the same body, not two different bodies, not two different groups, same body, members of the same body, uh, partners of the promise in Christ Jesus. This was a mind blow. The Jews would have thought we have all the promises. Like we got Moses on our team, Abraham, we call him Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have any sense? Maybe they even sang that song, I don't know. What I'm saying is, they thought, we got it all. <laughs> the whole Testament, that's ours. Maybe you get some New Testament. Well, we got the old. God's saying, uh-uh. You are now partners of the promises. All the promises that came to them extended to you. Listen to what Galatians 3 says. Kind of a cross-reference, a, cross, uh, a parallel thought. Paul says, there is no Jew or Greek. Now, ethnicity matters. There really were. But he goes, no, in God's eyes, there's no difference in worth. There's no difference in worth. No Jew nor Greek. Slave or free. Doesn't matter if you're a slave in the Roman Empire or if you're free. Doesn't matter. In God's eyes, equal. Male and female. Women were so disregarded, so second class, viewed almost as property. No, but not in God's eyes. Total equal. Since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, here it is then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. It's all yours. It's all yours. Your members, your, your co-heirs, like I've brought it all together. Guys, what then is the mystery? I mean, I even saw that, and I'm not good at mysteries. Like, I get it. Jews can know Jesus through faith. 
Gentiles can know God through faith. Because of that, there are equals and they can have relationship with one another. There's not brokenness. Well, what's the mystery? Because the Old Testament said as much. It was saying, even in the Old Testament, that my promise that came to the Jews, the blessing of Abraham, Genesis 12, was going to overflow to Gentiles. So I could have seen that coming. That can't be the mystery. That's all right. It was obvious. And somehow Jews and Gentiles, like, they're, they're both loved of God. They'll be together in a king. Like, somehow. That's not a mystery. What's the mystery? It's this. The mystery is that this group of people who both came to know and love God could actually come to know and love each other and all of it would happen for the first time ever in a thing called the church. The church is the center of God's will. It is the high point of human history where he fuses together men and women ethnicities, races, colors, differences that would seem to polarize everyone and he would bring it all together. Before heaven, you don't have to wait. And you and I will learn to be dear brothers and sisters in Christ in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial community where different socioeconomic, somehow we would learn to love Commune, be unified, work together, use gifts, be on mission, and march forward for the sake of the gospel. No one saw that thing coming together. That was the mystery revealed. It's going to happen here on earth. Get ready and get involved. The church, the church is the center point of God's movement of history. The church, and Paul goes on with this thought in Ephesians 3, 7. He goes, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace to me, the, the least of all the saints, that's what he refers to himself, was to proclaim the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He goes, man, my part to play in that was to help the Gentiles know that you're in. And Paul had a unique ministry to the Gentiles, one he would suffer a lot for. But he was trying to help them know you're in. God's, God's not forgotten about you. You're in. The church is for you also. But I want to draw your attention to two things that stood out to me. One, in those last few verses, Paul's view of himself and the effect of God's grace in his life. Paul's view of himself. Let me first ask you, what's your view of yourself? What's your identity? Like if I asked you, who are you? What would you tell me? Like you might start in a very normal way. Like if you came up to me and said, hey, hey, who are you? I go, I'm Paul. And then what if you, but I, my voice wouldn't crack what I say. <laughs> I was trying to say, I'm, I'm Paul. Um, <clears throat> But, but if then you might say to me, actually, that's just your name. Who are you? And I go, oh, trick question. I get it. Um, well, I'm a pastor at Salt Church. And they might say, oh, that's, uh, honestly, that's just your profession. But who are you? Uh, it's getting harder with you. 
you new visitor with lots of questions. Um, well, I was a graduate of Iowa State. My background's in mechanical engineering. I go, oh, no, that's just what you studied. That's where you went to school. That's your alma mater. Who are you? I'm a man. That's just your gender. Who are you? I might start going, who am I? <laughs> uh, maybe I, who are you? It's important because all of life flows from your identity. This is answered a lot in the Bible when someone comes to know Jesus, who they are. You need to know. It changed my life as a new Christian to get this. But let me just give you a couple phrases that the Apostle Paul uses of himself. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Ooh, I didn't want that one. He's willing to suffer for what is so valuable to him. But here in this passage, he calls himself, I am a servant of the gospel. And he says, I'm the least of all the saints. A servant of the gospel. In a culture that honestly just wants to be served and served fast. I want my food. I want it ready. If I don't think you're going to get it ready enough, I'll call ahead. I'll walk up to the window and pick it up. I, in a culture that wants to be served, Paul's like this. Here's how you can think of me. I'm your servant. I'm your slave. I'm, I'm, I'm your first. I'm second. What do you need? Ladders in the kingdom of God don't go up. They always go down. The, those who are going to be leaders get to be servants. Look, I was here at 5.30 this morning, right, setting this place up. But when I got here, I felt like I was late. You want to know why? Because a couple of our elders were here before I got here. Like, I walk in, like, well, you got, you got Ricky Tell. And he looks like he's running a race. I'm like, why are we in such a hurry? Is there an emergency? What's going on? And you got Frankie, a huge servant. And then Dan comes. And then people, and then all these people are piling. Guys, it's 530 in the morning. It's so dark out. Just setting up everything. Like, like with our hair on fire, you know. And you're just talking and having a good time. Like people here, they're servants of the gospel. I felt bad going, oh, it said 6 a.m. I think we got back up to 530. 525. I felt like I was late. Just serving. Is there something more important than that? Their timeline says God's the most important thing to me. The gospel's the most important thing. The church, if that's the center of God's will, it's the center of my life also. Center of my budget. It's the top of my budget. I won't stop giving to that. I won't stop serving at that. God put me in this family. I'm going to play my part. I got a part to play too. You got a part to play. Every person who knows Jesus has a part to play. Paul's just like, servant. That's how I am. The ladders in the kingdom of God, they just go down. But Paul's joy didn't go down. Boy, that's a shocker. It's just like he kept finding joy in an identity of like, no, let me help you. Wow. And then he says, I'm the least of all the saints. That's one way to translate it. Another way of saying is, I'm the very least of all the saints. Paul, I think, knows how to speak. He's a very educated man, but he does something that linguistically is an anomaly. It doesn't make sense. He, he uses a comparative and a superlative. Here's what I mean. I might say, um, you know, I am not as good as Jordan Prohoda at pickleball. And if I said that, I'd be telling the truth. That really bothers me that that's true, and I will try and change that. Um, but it is true. I am not as good. That's a comparative statement. A superlative is to say, I am the worst in all of Gainesville at pickleball. I don't think that's true. 
I know the first one's true. But what the apostle Paul does is he does something that no one does. It doesn't, it's clunky English. It's clunky Greek. He goes, I am less than the least of everyone. I am a comparative and a superlative, put them together. I'm the lowest of the low. I will use bad grammar to make this point, that of all the saints, of all the ones who know God, I view myself as the very lowest. Did Paul have a self-esteem problem? Did Paul not have a first grade teacher to tell him he's number one? Did, is Paul broken as a child? No, I just think he got it. I think the more he walked with God, the more he also knew, I know it's broken in me. I don't like it either. But oh, the grace of God. Like somehow he became more and more and more aware of his need, his brokenness, his sin. But the cross of Christ got bigger and bigger and bigger in his mind. So the delta, the difference between those two created tremendous worship. But he was able to say, man, I'm like the least, I'm the less than the least, I'm just right down here. He wasn't down on himself. He just could say what's true. That's how he felt. As you follow him chronologically through the New Testament, I've been told he called himself a sinner. The worst of sinners, the least of all of these. And he was made a servant of this gospel, a servant. Don't you want to be in on this? The greatest thing that God's doing on planet Earth. God's calling you into the best thing. He, he really is calling you into the best thing. And so, so he, he saw himself as the least of all these, but he had purpose. This guy who might have considered himself a nobody or at least spoke like it, he was a nobody who lived life on purpose for God. Listen to this. He says his purpose was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And here he goes, the incalculable riches of Christ. I want to tell all the Gentiles and non-Jews, oh, it's so good. You got to follow Jesus. It's so good. The incalculable riches of Christ that you too can experience what it is to be chosen, redeemed, adopted, forgiven, brought into the family of God, given the Holy Spirit as an inheritance to look forward to endless eternal displays of God's grace, his favor, his love. You can have God as father. You can have his son as savior. You can have the Holy Spirit as a helper. All the Trinity could be on your side. Oh, the riches. And it doesn't cost you anything. All you got to do is be humble enough to say you need it. Oh, come. Enjoy the riches of Christ. Listen to what John R. Stott said about this phrase, incalculable riches. He says this. Translators and commentators compete with one another in their attempt to find a dynamic equivalent in English. That, that, that phrase um, about the riches. The riches of Christ, they say, are unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable. I didn't even know that was a word, actually. Inscrutable and incalculable. Perhaps GNB's, this other version's infinite is the simplest. For what is certain about the wealth of Christ has and gives is that we shall never come to an end of it. He just invites us in. God like backs up the truck and just pours riches into our lives. And Paul's like, I just, I'm like, I'm like a scientist who found the answer for cancer. I just can't stop telling people. Like how evil would it be? Keep that to yourself. He's just like, no. I'm gonna tell everyone who's dead broke spiritually in the eyes of God, dude, you could be loaded. <laughs> you could be rich. Like God's not broke. If he divides it all out, it just keeps coming. Like the riches of Christ are available to you. This is good news. 
we need to tell people that good news is right around the corner for them. You could experience it. You could experience the riches of forgiveness and adoption. All, all this could be yours. I love being a part of a church where people are telling other people. And even people who aren't telling other people are like, help me get better at telling other people. I want to tell other people about this. Paul was all about it. He was trying to shed light. That's what it says in verse 9, to shed light. I talked about Paul Nance bringing up the lights of his truck, shedding some light. This, Paul's like, I want to bring something to light. Light's a big theme for the Apostle Paul. He was on a donkey, got blinded by light. He's like, I'm supposed to bring the light of the gospel to the Gentiles. Like light was big to the Apostle Paul, that theme even in his life. And now he's like, I want to shed light on the administration of the mystery hidden, the mystery hidden. Look, like Paul, God has revealed himself to every Christ follower here. And like Paul, every Christ follower here has the opportunity to share this gospel. It's good news. Evangelism isn't bad news, it's supposed to be good news. <laughs> Sharing good news is a lot of fun, actually. It, it really is fun when you have something really good. Oh, have you eaten at fill in the blank? Like, that's fun. Have you seen this movie? We Increasing your joy and inviting people into your joy. Guys, that's what life's all about. We do it naturally. We just don't call it evangelism. We need to help people know they can know Jesus. Look, guess who's also watching this drama of the church unfolding? Look at this, Ephesians 3, 10 through 13. Because there are more eyes on this than just Jews and Gentiles. Paul said this whole thing. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may, be, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So that I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now look back at verse 10. Let's leave that up for a second. Paul says, this is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So, so who is the audience for which God is doing this thing called the church? Where anyone can have peace with God, where anyone who's been in hostility with each other can in the church have restored relationship? What is this whole mystery of the church? Like, why is God doing this? Who's he putting this on display for? It says, for the rulers and the authorities in the heavens. Just when we thought the whole gospel is just about us, God's like, zoom out. Let me, let me tell you that I am putting on a demonstration of my grace and mercy and power. And guess who's watching it? It's just not you. It's thousands upon thousands, millions perhaps upon millions of angels, the demonic realm. They're all watching this unfold. God's like, I'm putting my greatness on display in front of them. It's like God was so proud of what he was doing. I want to show everyone. Everyone needs to see this. Guys, we think we're the center of it. We think it's all about us or this church. God's like, the angelic realm is watching. And they're so curious about this stuff. I don't have time to get into a passage that will talk about how even angels who who saw things unfolding in the Old Testament and the scriptures, they didn't understand it. Angels aren't omniscient. They don't know everything. God knows everything. They don't. They're always learning, always growing. They're curious about these things. Can you imagine their curiosity? Angels, just as, as history's unfolding, get this, Jesus is gonna be born by a virgin. 
Could you have imagined that, Gabriel? You know, Michael's like, oh, man, I never could have seen it in a million. Hey, guys, check it out. He's walking on water. You know, like, I would imagine the drama of the Bible had to be just like so much delight and joy. The thunder of the worship of the angels when Jesus was born, the hallelujah chorus that just, we just get a break into it. Guys, the scriptures, the main theme is the redemption of mankind. But every now and again, it just shows you a little, bit, little glimpse of the angelic. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. The worship of the angels. Can you imagine the silence of heaven as the angels had to stand by as they began to beat Jesus, as they began to torture him? Any one of them could have grabbed his sword and put to death all the enemies. Jesus said, I could call right now on the angels of heaven. Can you imagine the silence of heaven as they stood? They had to have been told to stand down. But at the ready, as their leader, the leader of the angelic realm, Jesus Christ, was being treated like that, heading to the cross. Guys, the angelic realm has been watching, observing. God's like, my church, what I'm doing in the church is so magnificent, it's so beautiful, it's so powerful, it's so worshipful. I've put it on display in front of the angelic realm. Angels and demons are standing by just watching. Un just minds blown at what God is doing in individual lives as it's unfolding. We just, we just only see a glimpse. Angels desire to look into these things. Guys, God calls the church to be a powerful group of united men and women. Unbelievable to me that when God said, I will bring this all together still, churches are so divided. It's unbelievable. Well, we, they might have thought, oh, well, okay, we'll get a church for Jews. We'll get a church for Gentiles. Maybe we'll get a church for this color people, that color people, this race of people. God's like, no, no, I, I want to see a picture of heaven before we get there where there's unity, power, and love. Let me just ask this. Okay, I, I, th I think the big idea of this passage is this. The church is at the center of God's world. I, I just want to ask you, is it at the center of your world also? I know many of you, you're centering your whole life around it. You would get up and move. It doesn't matter what your house, do you gain on it? Do you lose? Doesn't matter. You, could you take a job here or there? Doesn't matter. You want to go where you're going to be most used for the kingdom. I know a bunch of you. You're just going, it used to be job, then da, 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 Jesus. Now it's, whew. it used to be, what's the biggest job offer? Because isn't God's will always the biggest number? No. Used to be. I used to only see that in college ministry. I'm seeing a movement now across the nation where people are going, not anymore. I'll take the lower job if it means putting the kingdom of God at first. It used to be, well, I got to go there because that's where the job is. No, where is God working powerfully in the kingdom? It used to be, oh, I'll use whatever I can on myself. And if I got a little bit of money left over, I might tip God, give him something in the offering jar. Because we don't even take an offering. You want to know why? Because we don't want you to think of God that way. We don't want you to give your best to your pursuits and then go, ah, maybe I'll tip God at the end. You got to figure out how to give around here. We want people to go, it's my highest priority. Unbelievable. We got Netflix on regular subscription. But people, maybe the kingdom of God isn't even as important <laughs> as entertainment. Well, when it is, it's amazing watching that takeover. Guys, the church is at the center of God's will. Where is it at in your life? There is no application in the first three chapters of Ephesians, by the way. All this just has me musing. If this is the center, 
is at the center of my world also. We get down to that, one of the closing verses, and I'll, I'll end with this. Paul says, in him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Guys, just such a beautiful thing. It's like from the cosmos, all of creation, angels, demons, everyone looking on, God goes right to an individual. And he goes, oh, guess what? All this, so that in him, we can have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Do you hear this magnificent promise? You, the person in your chair, you can have boldness, that confidence to come right into the presence of God and share anything on your heart. You have just a backstage pass right to Jesus. Hebrews says it this way, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Like God does not need to be a superstar that you can never get close to, who runs the universe, who's doing this church, this big thing, whatever. He's like, no, you. No, I, I want to hear from you. All the gospel was so that you can you could be friends with God. There could be intimacy. Um, some of you know, some of you are into sports and you know this guy, Harrison Barnes. Harrison Barnes, uh, here's a picture of him. He, he was, yeah, dude, I'm out of time. Yeah, turn that timer off. Um, <laughs> Harrison Barnes, um, he's been on a lot of teams and... Uh, he was on one team, and he and Steph Curry and all that team, they won the whole thing. You can tell I don't know basketball that well. And then he went on another team. He was on the Mavericks, and then he is now on a team called the Kings, and that was him uh, in the Olympics winning gold. And he, in high school, he was the number one recruit anywhere. I mean, he was the number one in the whole nation. And, you know, I don't know what you were doing on your spring break. He's like, I'm going to go play basketball with LeBron James and be at his camp and what, you know, so that was Harrison. He is number one pick and could pick any college and has done all this pro stuff. And he's just amazing. Um, I even went to go see him once. I went down to Orlando to see him play the Magic and his team won. He was on the Kings and, and he won. But interestingly, I didn't pay anything for those tickets um, because I was just texting Harrison and he says, you want tickets? I'm close. I'm close again. And I said, I can make this work. And, and I said, yeah, send me the tickets. Because Harrison to me isn't like just a superstar kind of guy. Harrison's my friend. I met him when he was in high school and, and he's just a high school student and I was just a pastor, and I, maybe it's because I don't know much about basketball, and I'm not super overawed about it, that it worked. But he would jam his massive body into my little Toyota Tercel, and his knees would be up near the dashboard, and I just began discipling him. And come over to my house. I'm going to put you to work, and you're going to learn that men are supposed to work hard. And I thought, shoot, I'm glad he didn't chop his fingers off when I was teaching him how to chop wood, you know, because they're pretty important for him. Um, but, but we just knew each other. We're just friends. And through his college years and meeting Brittany and just like doing life and having his first baby. And finally, he was close enough and I said, yeah, dude, I'd, I'd do it. In fact, my son, I think, is still angry with me because Harrison invited me to his wedding and, um, and I had a church event. So that maybe made angry, just I angry at God because like oh, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Kyle, Kyrie Irving, all these guys that just, I was like, I could have been on the dance floor with them. And I'm like, Sorry, I was busy, you know, but like, so he didn't get to go. He's still angry at me and the Lord. No, I don't know how he thinks. But guys, like, like this last picture, I mean, it's just, 
just we're friends. And here's, here's what I'm saying. He's not just some bajillion megastar whatever. It's like we have, a, we have a friendship. I just know him. He knows how to pray for me. I know how to pray for him. And what I'm saying is God isn't a superstar ruling the galaxies far away. He has invited you in to be his friend, to intimately have communion with him, to share all of your heart. And he will, through his word, share all of his heart with you. You have something so special. The church is at the center of God's will, but the church is about just people like us that can day by day enjoy communion with Jesus. Guys, friends of God. And it all was made possible because he died on the cross. We're going to celebrate communion. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. Guys, communion is an opportunity where we realize that friendship costs an awful price. Jesus Christ went to the cross years ago because he knew he had to die on behalf of our sins. And it says that his body was broken, his blood was spilled so that we could find forgiveness in him. And if you're a Christian this morning, this is the greatest news possible, that friendship with God, intimacy with God was made possible through the cross. And so there is communion here and here and in the backs of the room and back there when you're ready to. If you know Jesus, when you're ready to, come. Thank God that through his blood, intimacy was restored. Friendship was restored. And we could be part of a family called the church and celebrate him forevermore. Let me pray. God, we celebrate you this morning. What a cost it was for you to become friends with us. We were enemies and you bridged the gap. And not only did you restore relationship, us between you, but us between others. We don't have to be a fighting group. We don't have to be a fighting church. We don't have to be divided by political preferences and races. And Jesus, you have brought a restored unity. God, may we live in that unity. I pray, God, as we take communion, that we would remember that that unity, that gospel, that intimacy, that friendship came at a tremendous cost. Jesus, it came through your blood. We are so grateful. We celebrate you this morning in your name.